But if you would go ahead and grab your Bibles, open up to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 17, so we'll get through about half of the chapter uh, tonight, and then we'll continue on next week. For those of you who are just joining us in the study, um, basically for the past four chapters, uh, we've been hearing about judgment coming upon Israel. And the illustration that Amos has chosen to use, Amos the prophet, is that God, Yahweh, is a roaring lion. And he is roaring from a distance, um, really as kind of a warning shot, letting Israel know that they have transgressed the boundaries, they've crossed over where they shouldn't, and if something doesn't change, then he will come and devour them. And so certainly so far it has been a book of judgment. But as we come to chapter 5, what we're going to find is that the roar is going to become a song. And the song is a song of lament. It's a lamentable prophetic account of the fall of Israel, which is really meant to provide yet another opportunity, another warning for Israel to repent. Uh, in my studies this week, I came across um, a recounting of an episode, a very old episode, the Andy Griffith Show. Anybody, do you even know what that is in here, people? Yeah? Oh, Emerson knows. You haven't seen it? Oh, you have CDs? All right, good job, Emerson. Um, I really don't know the show either, but anyways, <clears throat> I know of the show. And in this episode... The sheriff, uh, it's Andy Griffith, so Sheriff Griffith, Andy Griffith, and Barney Five, the deputy, are quite concerned because there is a town drunk um, who has just bought a car. And so they're concerned that the town drunk is going to get in the car and he's going to hurt somebody. Um, and so with this concern, they're driving around, they're patrolling one night, or at least Barney Five is, and he sees him, um, Otis is his name, passed out drunk on his car, on top of his car. And so Barney uh, concocts a plan. He goes and tells Andy, and they grab Otis. They put him in the police car. They take him back to the station. They put him in the cell where he is really a regular guest. Um, and there he is, passed out. And so the plan goes like this. They wake him up. And then they splash water on him, wake him up, they pretend not to see him or hear him, and they just start talking about this horrible accident that Otis was in where he was killed in a drunk driving accident. And so they're recounting about how much they miss their friend Otis, and then they start singing a song of lament of how much they miss Otis, and then Otis joins in in the song and then eventually passes out. He wakes back up. And he says, I just had this horrible nightmare, and I'm no longer going to drink ever again. And so the point of the story, one, it's kind of a funny illustration, and it shows you just how far TB has gone since then. But the point of the, the story is really to show you that this is kind of what Amos is trying to do. Barney Five, Andy Griffith, and all of their wisdom thought, okay, he's going down a bad path, so let's show him where the path is going to end. It's not going to end in a great place. It's going to end in his death and destruction. Amos is trying to do the same thing. He's warned them. 
They keep going down that path. And so now what he's going to do, or what the Lord's going to do through Amos, is going to say, well, this is how it's going to end. And he's going to show them the death and destruction that is going to come in the future. So this is a prophetic lament. Uh, This is not the lament of lamentations where you're looking back at what has already happened. This is the lament of Amos where you're looking forward to what is going to happen. And yet, because it's so vivid, he's painting the picture in such a way where there still ought to be wailings um, that happen as a result. And so you might picture Amos like this. Here's this prophet. You remember, he's already gotten his name. Here, Here comes that pain is possibly one translation of his name. Here he comes, but this time he's not coming just speaking a message. He's coming with everything that would make you think of a funeral. And he's serious. He keeps up the act. And again, all because he wants them to finally see where this is headed. And so these are warnings of potential future. The lion has been roaring, warning, and now he's going to wail as a result of his or their sin. And I've thought of multiple ways I could maybe approach this passage for tonight, but what I eventually landed on is I want to approach this passage by looking at what it reveals about the heart of the lion. What does this tell us about the heart of God for his people? Because this lament is a word from Yahweh. And so that's how we're going to approach it. We're going to come away with five insights into the heart of God, the heart of the lion, get a fuller picture of who he is. And so the first insight is this. We have the heartfelt passion of the lion in verses 1 through 3. Uh, Let me begin by reading those verses to you. Amos writing, Hear this word which I take up for you as a funeral lament, O house of Israel. She has fallen. She will not rise again, the virgin Israel. She lies abandoned on her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus says Lord Yahweh, the city which goes forth 1,000 strong will have 100 left. And the one which goes forth 100 strong will have 10 left to the house of Israel. Suddenly we are transported from a courtroom to the house of mourning. And it is particularly sad because here we are in a room where there should be life. This is God's people, and we are in a room filled with death. You might picture it of a son of an extremely rich man who is in the prime of his life, and now we find out he has died poor and alone. This is Israel. And he begins by saying, hear this word which in one sense is kind of an amazing thing that he even has to say it. It is a marveling fact that the Lord would have to call out in a bold manner, in a wake-up kind of manner, hear what I'm saying. It should just be that the Lord speaks and everybody listens. But in this case, he's trying to get their attention. I've been speaking, now hear what I'm about to say. It basically just reveals that for the sinfulness of the human heart, God's voice is often just background noise. But he wants them to listen. And so the heart of the lion begins to shine. 
And basically what this has to reveal to us is that though God is a God of justice and judgment, and though He's been warning of wrath, when that wrath comes, there is in the heart of God sorrow and grief. And it brings Him no pleasure. He gets no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Scripture says. And so this is full of wailing. It says in verse 2, She has fallen, she will not rise again, the virgin Israel. All throughout the Old Testament and the Scriptures, uh, this is meant as a picture of uh, God's betrothed, His virgin, His wife. This is how He pictures Israel. A virgin is pure and chaste. In other other words, this is not what you would expect. Uh, The virgin should be devoted to her God. She is not. She is an adulteress. She has fallen. So this is a very sad picture. But this is the heart of God. All throughout the Scriptures, this is the heart of God. When Jesus approached Jerusalem at the end of His ministry, He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. As Jesus is saying this, you have to think, perhaps He even had this situation in His mind. There was that time when Amos called out, and you were not willing. I tell you, you will not see Me again until you say, Blessed is He, who comes in the name of the Lord. Until you say to anyone, any prophet, whether that be Jesus Himself, John the Baptist, any prophet, until you say, blessed is that person who comes in the name of the Lord, you will be desolate. In some sense, that is fulfilled today. Uh, This prophecy that Amos is giving was fulfilled. Everything was destroyed again. And even though there is the nation of Israel, it is not in its fullest aspect, and of course they're still, in one sense, under judgment and foregoing the pains that come from a nation that has rejected their Messiah. But the Lord weeps. Luke 19.41, Jesus, and when He drew near, He saw the city, He wept over it. He wailed is another way you can translate that. Again, He says the same thing. Would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He says that when the destruction comes, it will come because you did not know the time of your visitation. The time of their visitation basically refers to any time that the Lord had spoken to Israel, but that particular time when they were visited by Emmanuel, God with us, and they had rejected it. Even though all the signs were there, the miracles were there, they rejected it. And in one sense, you could say that anyone who comes in contact with God's Word, that is a visitation from the Lord. And for those who reject it, what you could say is they did not know the time of their visitation. In other words, the light was shining right in front of them, and they didn't see it. They didn't know that it was the Lord. The one who sat in darkness did not feel the warmth of the Lord's light. So the Scripture is full of wailings, insights into the heart of God for the lost. 
Now, 1 Timothy 2.1, Paul says to Timothy that we ought to pray for all men, for those in authority, kings, men, with thanksgiving. And then he says this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Why? It says who desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. Full knowledge. So we're not just looking for people to be in church. We're not just looking for people to go to the nation of Israel and to have some knowledge. We want the full saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the situation going on in Amos's day is that they had some knowledge, but it wasn't a saving knowledge. It was just enough knowledge to send them to hell. It's not the kind of knowledge you want. As God's children, those who have the truth, we ought to have the same heart for the lost. Uh, we don't laugh over the situation. We don't fight against them in that way. We don't take joy or pleasure in their sin, in their destruction. We take on the heart of God, the one that Paul emulates. He says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ, Romans 9.1. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, unceasing grief in my heart. I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. The heart of God becomes the heart of His people if His people are close to Him. And so really what Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 remind us of is that sin always brings sadness and destruction. First to the heart of God, this is why it's particularly evil, but also to the heart of His people. And you can see the destruction in verse 3. Thousand strong city goes to a hundred. Hundred strong city goes to ten. And the idea there is basically, hey, the major population centers, they're going to be nothing, dwindled to nothing. And the little villages, they're also going to be left desolate. And nowhere is spared. Another thing this shows us is that our position as His children, if we have some claim to the knowledge of God, this does not spare us from His rod of correction and judgment. Uh, Hebrews reminds us of that. And then last, as we've mentioned several times, our sin, your sin, my sin, uh, the sin that happens within the church, God weeps over this. It grieves His heart. And so His judgment is there, but it is not devoid of sorrow. So that's some insight into the heart of the lion, the passion of the lion for His people. Now we'll look at a second insight the song reveals, and that is the merciful plea of the lion. This lion is also full of mercy. And so the song tells us that one day Israel is going to fall. It's in sense a warning. But now he's going to cry out for mercy. He's going to pursue them in one sense. And so we read starting in verse 4. For thus says Yahweh to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may live. But do not seek Bethel, and do not come to Gilgal, nor cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into exile, and Bethel will become evil. Seek Yahweh, that you may live, lest he come mightily like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. This is a merciful plea. Seek Yahweh. Seek Yahweh. That is what salvation is. 
When you begin to seek after the Lord, to draw near to the Lord, He has promised He will draw near to you. But there's an interesting thing going on here. God says essentially like this in a modern vernacular. He says, seek me, but don't go to church. Seek me, but don't go to that church. Don't go to that holy site. Don't go to Bethel, Gilgal, or Beersheba. What's he saying here? We have no idea what these places are because we live in America, and America is only concerned with America. Um, But they would have known what these mean. So Bethel, what is this? Bethel in Genesis is associated with the patriarch Jacob. And Jacob here had two encounters with the Lord. The first encounter, he really had no idea who he was or where he was going, and he had this encounter with the Lord, which gave him more of a future. From there, he had a purpose. The second time he had an encounter with the Lord, he woke up with a new name, Israel. Again, more of a future, more of a purpose. And so the Lord spoke, and it had a profound effect. There was a profound change. In other words, Bethel reminded Israel that when you meet God, there is life-giving change in purpose. He says to them, don't go there. Do not go to Bethel. Gilgal. This also was a place uh, that had great significance for the people of Israel. This was the place where Joshua set up a monument, a 12-stone monument, to help them remember how they miraculously crossed the Jordan. And if you were in, was anyone in Bereans when we talked to Joshua, just out of curiosity? Hey, all right, we got, we got a few long timers. All right, so we had some. Um, and you probably don't remember, but that specific incident is the river's overflowing. It's during the flood season. There's no way that these people who have been wandering in the desert can cross over to take the promised land. God causes the water to stand up way away in another city so that they could cross over on dry land. Joshua sets up the monument there, and that was so that the children would remember the miracle that the Lord had done, that He was with them, in order to help them do what He had called them to do. This was a monument, a memorial, a site which reminded them of their inheritance and of the possession that was promised to them, the land that was promised to them that God fulfilled. So Gilgal speaks of the inheritance which belongs to God's people. But Amos says, don't go there anymore. Third, we have Beersheba, associated with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham was called here. This is where he received his name. He learned that God would be with him to fulfill his purposes. Isaac had a similar experience, and the Lord spoke to him, and this was his words, Fear not, for I am with you. Years later, Jacob was headed to Egypt, responding to the invitation that his son Joseph had given to him. And as he's going, he stops here at Beersheba. He has a vision from the Lord. These are the words, Do not be afraid. I will go down with you. In other words... Beersheba is all about the comforting presence, the strengthening presence of the Lord to accomplish His purposes. Again, God says, do not cross over to Beersheba. 
don't go there. So the question is, why? In Bethel, there is death where there should be life. They are pursuing false practices, false worship, which is going to essentially lead to death in a place where when you meet God, there should be life, change, renewing. None of this was happening at Bethel. God says, stop going there. You're just heaping more judgment on yourself. In Beersheba, this is a place that reminded them of God's strengthening presence, so there should be fellowship, companionship. Instead, there's abandonment. They had abandoned the Lord. He says, don't go there. You've forgotten that I am there and the purpose for which I am there. Don't go there any longer. In Gilgal, this was a place to remind them of their inheritance. God was about to snatch that from them because they were not walking according to His commandments. In all of this, we have again another warning that salvation and life cannot come through corrupt sanctuaries. And this is a warning not only to us here at this church to continue to hold the line according to the Scriptures, but also to the entirety of our country. I, I challenge you, I don't know if this is a good thing to challenge you with or not, but just do some quick searches on some of the most popular preachers, preachers out there, like I did this week, and your spirit will be provoked. Because what you realize is these people have no sense of God. They have no sense of His Word. They're walking around stage, they're, they're using gimmicks, uh, people there are, are falling for it. Why? Because they're tickling ears. They're giving them exactly what they want. But God is not there. And all they're doing is heaping judgment on themselves in a place that should be devoted to worship. And so when you come to church, you have to keep in mind that you're coming to church to worship God. When you open your Bible, you have to keep in mind this is not a ritual. This is a relationship. There is a reason why we come to church, and it has nothing to do with me. We come here to truly meet the Lord, and this is His house, His rules. We don't do whatever we want. It's all about Him. And so this is a merciful warning. If they can't go here, can't go to Bethel, they can't go to Gilgal, they can't go to Beersheba, where should they go? He says, seek me. Seek me. Come to me. Seek me that you may live. Or verse 6, seek Yahweh that you may live. It was something that they maybe didn't consider. They had thought that they were seeking Him. God says you're not at all. So throw that out and just come to me as you are. You're in great need of me. Come. Come to me as you are. And then as you come, what he's going to do now is transition, and he's going to show them the awful power of who he is. So third, we have the awful power of the lion. And I think this is set here in the middle. This is a chiastic structure, which essentially means if you picture a chiasm like a sandwich, you've, you've got the, the bottom piece of the sandwich, okay? And that's going to match the top piece. And then you've got the meat here in the middle, and those things are going to match. And then in the middle is the, or not, sorry, not the meat, you've got the cheese. In the middle is the most important thing of the sandwich, and that is the meat, right, guys? 
Okay, the meat's the most important thing. And this is the most important thing here, and that is the revelation of who God is. And so starting in verse 7, and really the, the center of the chiasm comes in verses 8 and 9, but starting in verse 7, we read this, For those who overturn justice into wormwood and put righteousness down to the earth, he who made uh, Pleiades and Orion and overturns the shadow of death into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. Yahweh is His name. It is He who flashes forth with devastation upon the strong so that devastation comes upon the fortification. They hate Him who reproves in the gate and they abhor Him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and take a tribute of grain from them, Though you have built houses of cut stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted desirable vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are mighty. You who distress the righteous and take bribes and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, at such a time, the one with insight keeps silent, for it is an evil time. This, again, is a description of Israel's sin. This is a time when Israel had forgotten who the Lord is, which meant they decided they could do whatever that they wanted to do in order to most bless them. It became a dog-eat-dog world. Which meant if you had power, you're the most powerful person, you have no concern with the person who's over you, who is God, so you're going to oppress the poor, lie, cheat, do whatever you can to gain more power. So what did they need? They needed a correct understanding of who God was. And this is what God gives them. He says, first, makes reference to the constellations, I'm the one who controls all. I control the skies which at that time would have meant to them he controls the seasons, the cycles, as uh, the earth turned. He is the one that controlled it all. The earth, its seasons, uh, the very things that Israel was dependent upon. They should be dependent upon the Lord. Furthermore, he was in control of earth's days and its nights. It says he overturns the shadow of death into morning and he darkens day into night. He controls the water, the provisions of life, everything that gives life. He controls the flood. In other words, this God is someone you do not mess with. And if you think you can mess with Him, then you need to go back to God's Word and have a correct understanding of who it is. To think that you can go into His house and commit acts of injustice or to play around is to have no understanding of who the Lord actually is. This is another section to say, prepare to meet your God. In verses 10-13, through 13, he's basically just warning them, I see it. I see it all. You're in power. The ones under you have no power. I see it. Those of you who have power but are doing nothing, I see it. You think you're off the hook, but I see it. I see the things that are happening when no one's looking. I see it all. I see the injustice, and I hate it. Therefore, 
If you do not repent, judgment is coming. It's just another merciful plea. If you will just see me as I am, you will realize you've got no hope but to repent. And so, he gives them a picture of who he is. I like the last verse. He says, therefore, verse 13, at such a time, the one with insight keeps silent. What time? An evil time, he says. We live in an evil time. How does an evil time become an evil time? Because the people who have actual insight, people with the Word of God, keep silent. You have insight. You have the Word of God. You're surrounded by people, whether it's at school or work, who have no understanding. It will continue to become an evil time, even more so, if you do not speak up. And God expects you to speak up. Don't let an evil day become a worse day because you join in with them by not saying anything. The Lord sees it. And so we've seen the heartfelt passion of the lion. He grieves over those who continue in their sin. We've noted the merciful plea of the lion. He pleads with those who continue in their sin. The awful power of the lion. He deals honestly with people who continue in their sin. And now the enduring pursuit of the lion. Again, he comes back to pursue them. He says, you're fallen. Here's a future picture of who you are. And then he says, please come to me. And then he says, this is who I am. So stop practicing. Realize you can't mess with who I am. Judgment is coming. And then he says again, come to me. Verse 14. Seek good and not evil in order that you may live. And thus, may Yahweh, God of hosts, be with you. Uh, God of hosts is a reference to his warring aspect, judgment. He says, I'll be with you if you do good. Just as you have said, hate evil, love good, and let justice and set justice at the gate. Perhaps Yahweh, God of hosts, may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. I think really who he's calling to are the people of verse 13. I think he sees that there's some hope. Those who have insight, who know the truth and are keeping silent. What is it that's going to allow them to speak up in an evil day? They have to know that the God of hosts is with them. And that's who I stand with. And that's where the line is drawn. He says, no, God of hosts will be with you just as I have said. That is a promise. A promise to you. What's going to cause you to speak up? You hate evil. I hate it. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of seeing it spread. I love good. Therefore, I'm going to pursue justice in the gate, in the most important places the Lord gives me. And then a prayer that He may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph, which is just a reference to those who are actually saved within the nation of Israel. He always protects his remnant. God is enduring in his pursuit of his people. He's constantly calling out. In Isaiah 55, 6, we have this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The constant call of the scriptures. Zephaniah 2, 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Psalm 14, 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see 
if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Revelation 22.17, almost the last verse of the Bible. In the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes receive the water of life without cost. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Draw near to the Lord. This is the call. And know that if you receive that call, there will be suffering. It will not be easy. You will have to speak up when you don't want to speak up. You will have to wage war against your own flesh. But know this, God will be with you. And the one who stands with you is the one who will one day war against those who do not. And so you continue to pursue the Lord. This line is patient. Second Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some consider slowness, but He is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He's patient, but not forever. Discipline will come. Justice will come. He will not let sin continue forever. And so the last insight, the righteous presence of the Lord. The righteous presence of the Lord. One day the Lord will come. In that day you're either found in Him or you're found outside of Him. And if you're found outside of Him, it will not be a good day. Amos 5.16 Therefore, thus says Yahweh, God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas, and in all the streets they say, Alas, alas, they have nowhere to run. They also call the farmer to mourning, and the professional weepers to wailing, and in all the vineyards there is wailing. Why? Because, it says, I will pass through the midst of you, says Yahweh. What is this? I think the people of Israel would have known exactly what he was referencing. He had passed through Egypt, the Passover, and the people of Israel spread the blood on the doorposts. And his presence in that day when he passed through meant mercy. But what he was essentially saying is, this time there's going to be no mercy. There'll be judgment. I'm putting you in the place of Egypt where there was wailing and gnashing of teeth on that awful night. Those who belonged to Israel were placed in the exact same position as Egypt. The people they hated. Another reminder that the Lord was going to deal with them honestly and justly if they did not receive the warning. He says, I will pass through in the midst of you, says Yahweh. And when He does, if there is no refuge from Him, if you're not found in Him, you will have nowhere to run. It's really another song of lament. Remember, I, I talked about this being a chiasm. It began with the song of lament. It ends with a song of lament in verse 16. And again, the point is to make you think about who God is in the middle so that you would avoid the beginning and the end of this. 
I want to end by just going to 2 Peter chapter 3 because I, th- I think it has a lot of parallels to what we're talking about. So turn over there to 2 Peter chapter 3. And we'll end with this section. 2 Peter chapter 3, I think, describes a similar situation to what Amos is dealing with. These are people who should know better that have decided to continue in their sin. Starting in verse 3, Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, falling after their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of His coming? I think these are people in church because they know better, and they're finally tired of it, and they're saying, where is he? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was. What is the fathers? The fathers are their fathers, fathers of the faith, just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. Humans have a short memory. To God, it's not that. It's as if it just happened. It's going to happen again. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly men. Here's what you should picture. At all times, sitting over the earth, is like a giant wave of fire just waiting to come down. What's holding it back? It's the patience of the Lord. And as soon as He removes the hand, the fire comes. And it happened one day, and they didn't think it was going to happen. And it will happen again. All this being the case, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, or sorry, verse 7, but by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept. In verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient towards you. He's not willing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now's the time. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. A thief doesn't tell you when He's coming. Which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. Everything burns up. And it showed for what it is. All this being the case, the conclusion, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, since all of earth's vanities and temptations are to be destroyed, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of God? because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt away with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. If all of these things are to be the case, then how foolish that any of us would be involved in any of the earth's pleasures and the world's pleasures and temptations which are one day going to bring destruction and misery upon all of the ungodly. Instead, we hasten the day of His coming by preaching the gospel, living out the gospel, always looking and wanting 
that day when Christ will come back. Because we're not fearful. When He comes, that's our salvation. And we need to warn people and call people, if you will seek God too, you will be merciful, and in that day, you will be found in Him as well. This is the message of Amos. This is the message of the entire Bible. Pray with me. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your graciousness, Your mercy. Father, we pray that You would help us to be found in You diligent. To be found in Christ in peace, spotless and blameless. Lord, that we would consider Your patience as salvation. Lord, that we would live wisely. Father, we're thankful for this prophecy that reminds us that what You promise will come true. We're thankful for Your warnings. Father, we're thankful that though we live in an evil day, Lord, You've given us truth so that we might be able to see through it. Lord, help us to do that. Give us strength, give us boldness, give us opportunities, Lord, to share with those who are in the darkness the truth that can bring them to the light. Lord, we thank You that You've opened our eyes. We pray, Father, if there's anyone here who has not yet had their eyes open, Lord, that You would do that tonight. We pray all of this in Your Son's name. Amen.